You write letters to people in the congregation who are having problems or who have asked you some particular questions. In the weekly bulletin. Yeah, you know, there are issues, and so you write letters, and then you die. I'm sorry to, anyway, sorry to bring that up, but. I, it, I don't worry, I went fast. Okay, then you die. <laughs> then you die. Welcome to another spine-tingling episode of On the Journey. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley, and he's a former Baptist pastor. I was an evangelical D-list indie rock type. Uh, we both, by strange circumstances, found ourselves in the arms of the Catholic Church, and yeah. that's what we talk about here on On the Journey, which is a production of the Coming Home Network. Visit us at chnetwork.org uh, to find out all of our resources and uh, all kinds of other fun stuff. Ken, how are you? I'm doing great today, Matt. I hope you don't run out of adjectives. Oh, I'll never run out of adjectives. Spine tingling. Spine okay. tingling. Well, now that I've heard you say that, I'm going to try and I'm going to try and bend all the material in the. You got to ramp direction. up the content. Yeah, I've got to ramp it up. It got to make it spine tingling. Okay. All right. Well, today we're talking about baptism, and we're going to do a few um, episodes on baptism. <clears throat> and I think it's important for us to note right at the outset of this that this is a really important issue that's going to illustrate some things we've talked about earlier. And it's also important mm -hmm. to, to illustrate that you were a Baptist, I was a Nazarene and a free Methodist. And not only did our views on baptism differ from the Catholic Church, we differed, you and I, from each other in those traditions. That's so right. This, is, that's this right. is a great one to start uh, in terms of picking a specific doctrine. I'm picking this as an illustration of something. So what we're going to dig into is actually a step or two before baptism, if that's all right. Okay. In our series uh, on Sola Scriptura, our spine-tingling series on Sola Scriptura, we spent some time talking about the idea of Scripture and tradition in the Catholic worldview, right? And how the two function together. Well, my, my experience is that listening to Protestants, um, listening to what Protestants think that Catholics think about this issue of tradition and Scripture, I find there to be a great deal of misrepresentation and just simple misunderstanding of what is meant, what what Catholics mean. And so I wanted to zero in on this. Um, as we move from our series on Sola Scriptura, Matt, I want to spend some time really just attempting to illuminate, uh, attempting to make clear, I hope crystal clear, exactly what Catholics mean when we speak of tradition. What do we mean by apostolic tradition? And what do we Catholics mean when we say that apostolic tradition can function or functions as an interpretive key to the meaning of sacred scripture. That apostolic tradition functions as a lens through which the teaching of scripture comes into focus. What in the world do we mean when we talk that way? The fancy folks call that a hermeneutic. Yeah, so. yeah, and that's where I want to begin. Remember, just a few background things very quickly. Remember that in the New Testament, the Greek word paradosis which is, which is translated as tradition, sometimes as teaching, depending on your, your bias, but it's mainly translated as tradition. This Greek word simply means that which is passed on. So that's what the word par paradosis tradition means, that which is passed on. It refers to the apostolic teaching 
whether delivered by word of mouth or by letter. And I think here of Paul's classic admonition to the believers in Thessalonica when he said in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, something like, stand firm, hold fast to the traditions you have received, whether by word of mouth or in writing. And I also think here of Paul's admonition to Timothy in 2 Timothy, where Paul's uh, preparing to leave this earth, and he says, Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words. That is, what you've heard me teach in the presence of many witnesses, this, um, this body of doctrine, this paradosis, this tradition that I've given you, he said, follow it, guard it by the Holy Spirit, and be prepared to hand it on to faithful men who will be able to teach others. So in short, tradition is that body of doctrine. That, that's all it is. The body of doctrine delivered by the apostles to the churches that they founded. It's the apostolic deposit of faith, as you like to say often. Okay. Yes. All right. Now we move to the early church again. Okay. In the early church, Scripture, and I want us to insist on this again and again and again so people listening won't get the wrong idea, Scripture was accepted and is still accepted by all Catholics as the inspired, infallible, authoritative, written record of the apostolic deposit of faith, the apostolic teaching. Okay? But then... As heresies began to spread in the early church, and as disagreements over the interpretation of Scripture began to multiply, the faith and practice of the churches, that is, the beliefs and practices of the churches, the doctrine that the churches knew, played an increasingly important role in determining and preserving the correct understanding of what Scripture was teaching. And this is and what came to be referred to as tradition or apostolic tradition or ecclesiastical tradition. And this is the kind of culture that produces the creeds, right? Um, that produces the definition of dogmas and doctrines. You know, we see that this certain community is having a challenge in this area. Well, let's make yeah. sure we are crystal clear now in a creed or in a dogma or in a doctrine. Right, right, right. And this is where tradition, as it were, begins to play a, an important role in, in, in determining what is the correct understanding of what Scripture teaches? And I, I want to illustrate this to show how, how this simply makes sense. Okay, Matt, let's imagine that you're the pastor of a megachurch. Lord, help us all. I know, frightening, I know, but anyway. Um, you know, we like to make our illustrations funny, and so I, I couldn't yeah, think of it. So let's pick the most ridiculous thing you can go. Yeah, right. Oh, okay. I've got my megachurch. i got my headset mic. I've got my uh, soul patch. I'm ready to go. Yeah, and you've got like two bushes and a couple of rocks behind you. and Right behind me. Okay. Imagine that you're the pastor of a megachurch. Imagine you're the pastor for about 20 years of this megachurch. Um, during that time, you preach every single Sunday. You teach Sunday nights, Wednesday nights. You teach entire series on all kinds of theological subjects. But you also write letters. You write letters to people in the congregation who are having problems or who have asked you some particular questions. In the weekly bulletin. Yeah, you know, there are issues. And so you write letters. And then you die. I'm sorry to... Anyway, sorry to bring that up, but I, I, I don't worry. I went fast. Okay, then you <laughs> then you die. Okay, and because your congregation held you in such high esteem, they gather all the letters that you wrote together and they bind them into a volume. Now imagine that Ken Hensley saunters into this church ten years after you've died, and um, I began to pick up this volume of letters you wrote, and I began to read it, and. Um, I come to the elders of the church at a certain point. I say, you know, 
I don't think that Matt believed in the deity of Christ. And uh, the elders say, what are you talking about? Well, I'm, I, I've been reading these letters here, and you know, he's, he says some strange, strange things. He says that Jesus grew in, in, in knowledge, in grace and knowledge. He says in another place that, that, that Jesus said that he didn't even know the day or the hour of the second coming, that only the Father knew. Um, this doesn't fit. You know, I, think that, I, I don't think that Pastor Matt believed in the deity of Christ. So, you know, all of the, the elders now at this point, they say, are you insane? I mean, he taught entire series on this subject. He spoke about it. Well, I mean, we heard a million sermons on this. We know what he taught. In other words, we know the doctrine that he communicated to us, and he believed in the deity of Christ. To which I respond, well, you know, he's gone now, and, um, you know, tradition is a funny thing. It's not very, it, it's, not some, it's not something that you can really rely on. We do have his letters here, and I think we should just stick with his letters and in these letters, I would insist that it's ambiguous. And so I think the safer position is to say that Pastor Matt might have believed in the deity of Christ, but maybe he didn't. And let's let's have that as our position. Okay. Yeah, it's, but that again, when you and I were, you know, ignorant of tradition, our assumption was that people just sort of arbitrarily added a rule here and added a rule there, and didn't understand that. Well, if I was the pastor of a megachurch, there's a lot of things I would have done. Among them, I would have handpicked a person to follow me That's right. in that pulpit, right? <laughs> who, yeah. who who would have carried on that mission and yeah. someone who I could trust to teach as I had taught. Yeah. We think that the yeah. early church didn't do that? I mean, come on. Well, well see, the, the situation that I have uh, attempted to illustrate here, this is what was happening precisely in the early centuries of Christian history. And, and, and what I mean by that is this. The churches knew the substance of the apostles' teaching. And they knew it not primarily because they had a letter that they had read from Paul or James or Peter, but because the apostles had taught them during the time that they were with them when they were founding the churches. And I think here of another passage, Acts chapter 20, where Paul is meeting with the elders, the leaders of the church in Ephesus. He's saying goodbye to them. And he says to them, quote, be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Now th think about that. For three years, the Apostle Paul is there in the city of Ephesus, night and day with tears, teaching the Ephesian believers everything, everything he thought about the Old Testament, about the New, about Christ and his mission, about what it all meant, about the Old Covenant, the, you know, teaching them everything he knew. Later on, he writes them a short letter, which is what, six pages? Six? I, I will tell you this. It does not take three years to read it out loud. No, no not at all. Six, <laughs> six pages. Now, I'm not saying that he taught them different doctrines than what are, you know, what are uh, referred to or alluded to in, in, in this very short letter to them. But the point is, they knew the substance of the apostles' teaching. And this was true in all of the most ancient churches. They knew the substance of the apostles' teaching. But when heretics came along, here's where the problem came up. The heretics didn't come saying, oh, I announce on my own authority, you know, ABC. They came quoting the scriptures. They came saying, hmm, you know, I've been reading uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, and I don't think that he means what you have been taking him to mean here. To prove their points, to win their converts, they appealed to scripture. And that created a situation. Now, you remember very well, I'm sure, the the colorful quotation from Saint Vincent of Lorraine, which I your, want your be, your best buddy. Well, I want to yeah, hear it again because buddy. it is so powerful. On this, listen to what he says: Saint Vincent of Lorraine, writing in the mid fifth century, 434 something like that. 
if one should ask one of the heretics, I mean, if, if, if one should ask one of the heretics, what ground have you for saying that I ought to cast away the universal and ancient faith of the Catholic Church? This heretic has a ready answer, for it is written. That's his answer. And forthwith, he produces a thousand examples, a thousand authorities from the law, from the Psalms, from the apostles, the prophets, by means of which, interpreted on a new and wrong principle, the unhappy soul may be precipitated from the height of Catholic truth to the lowest abyss of heresy. Do heretics appeal to Scripture? They do indeed, and with a vengeance, for you may see them scamper through every single book of Holy Scripture. Hardly ever do they bring anything forward of their own, which they do not endeavor to shelter under the words of Scripture. You will see an infinite heap of instances from Scripture, hardly a single page of what they write, which does not bristle with plausible quotations from the New Testament and the Old. And as we always like to point out, he's writing this uh, about 1,100 years before Sola Scriptura becomes a thing. Yeah, yeah before the time of the Reformation, when it's, right. when it's set forward, yeah. So you understand the problem. I mean, even though Scripture is viewed as inspired and infallible and authoritative, when the heretics come along and begin using Scripture to prove their false positions— you know, as Vincent says, you know, interpreting, I mean, presenting plausible quotations, the church had to respond. And the way that the fathers would respond to this is that they would say, in essence, no, Mr. Heretic or Mrs. Heretic, the correct understanding, that's the key, the correct understanding of what the apostles taught and what they wrote in their letters has been preserved in the churches they founded, guarded by the Holy Spirit and handed down through their successors. That's where ecclesiastical tradition came into play. And this is why statements can be found scattered throughout the writings of the early church that sound like this statement from Origen, written around 225 AD. This is Origen, quote, The teaching of the church has indeed been handed down through an order of succession from the apostles and remains in the churches even to the present time. That alone is to be believed as the truth which is in no way at variance with ecclesiastical and apostolic tradition. Or this statement from Irenaeus that we've read a couple times, but it's so powerful, and it had such a powerful effect on me. I remember so you know years ago when I was thinking this stuff through for the first time. Here's what Irenaeus said. It is not necessary to seek among others the truth, which is easily obtained from the church. For the apostles, like a rich man in a bank, deposited with her, that is the church, most copiously, everything which pertains to the truth. And everyone who, whoever, everyone whoever who wishes to draw from her the drink of life. What then, if there should be a dispute over some kind of question, ought we not have recourse to the most ancient churches in which the apostles were familiar and draw from them what is clear and certain in regard to that question? And to, to just tap in on that, mm -hmm. uh, I expected to find people writing things like this after Constantine. I did not expect them to find to find people writing and talking like this basically a generation and a half after the apostles themselves. Yeah, because the whole idea that you and I accepted was that the church was essentially a Protestant church, and then with Constantine in the fourth century, you know, uh, it began to be deformed and warped into this hideous monstrosity called Catholicism, right? I actually have a history text that's called the History of the World Christian Movement, mm -hmm. right? Because they won't even mm -hmm. use the word 
church mm-hmm. history in the title because it's this Christian movement until Constantine gets a hold of it. But Irenaeus is clear. Yeah, and you uh, hear these things. You hear these things early, early on. In fact, in his classic book, Early Christian Doctrines, the great early church historian J. N. D. Kelly put it like this: It's very clear. Scripture and the church's unwritten tradition were identical in content, both being vehicles of the revelation. If tradition is a more trustworthy guide, this is not because it comprises truths other than those revealed in Scripture, but because the true tenor, the true tenor of the apostolic message is there unambiguously set out. So, you know, he, he says there so well, I mean, he answers there so well the que- the questions that come, because Protestants will often say, well, what are you saying? There's different doctrines being passed down in tradition than, than are, you know, spoken of in the scriptures, something like that. He goes, no, 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 I no, I mean, no. that was my assumption, right? That there yeah. was a str- there's the scriptures and there's the tradition, and one's got the truth and the other's just kind of coming up with their own thing of arbitrary new rules. Yeah, and, and that wasn't the situation at all. What you've got is you've got the Gnostics, for one thing, saying, oh, no, 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 the truth is a secret tradition that was passed down only to a few that are illuminated and in the know. And then you have the other bulk of heretics appealing to Scripture, you know, their writings bristling with, with, with plausible quotations from the Old and New Testament, and yet interpreting them in a wrong way. And it was in the face of this that the church came, and you find the early fathers I mean, these are the bishops, the martyrs, the apologists, the saints, all saying, no, 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 no. And again, quoting here J.D. Kelly, if tradition in the early church is conceived as being a more trustworthy guide than Bible alone, this is not because it comprises truths other than those revealed in Scripture, but because the true tenor, the correct understanding of the, of the apostles' message is there unambiguously set out. It's the crazy idea that not only did the church preserve the scriptures, they also preserved a way to understand the scriptures correctly. That's all. That's all we're all we're saying. So that's correct. With that in mind, yeah, let's now pick it, a doctrine. Let's pick a doctrine and test it. Yeah. Now we come to the illustration because really, Matt, for me, coming to understand this idea that we've been laying out here, this idea that tradition provides a lens through which the teaching of scripture can be brought into focus, this idea coming to understand it was critical in my own conversion. And, and I would have to say the best illustration of exactly how this idea and coming to understand it led me in the direction of the church has to do with the Catholic doctrine of baptismal regeneration. This is the, the illustration that captured me. And so this is where we want, to, we want to go with the time we have remaining. And I need to begin with a little story. When Tina and I were in seminary, or when I was in seminary, Tina and I, for a time, actually attended an Orthodox Presbyterian church. Okay, we were Baptists. So therefore, you were down with OPC? Yeah. All right. Well, well, therefore, we believe that baptism, that you only baptize those who come to personal faith in Christ, no infant baptism, and that baptism is purely symbolic, all right? It, it doesn't do anything. In fact, that never entered my mind. But we were attending an Orthodox Presbyterian church for a time because the pastor of this church was a, kind of a famous apologist. I'd read his works, and I was very, very much respected him. So I, I just wanted to go there, even though we weren't pres- Presbyterian, all right? Well, he decided that he wanted to make me into a Presbyterian, and he wanted me to graduate from seminary and join him in the ministry. And so we began to meet for lunch and discuss this issue. The main issue was infant baptism. Because I was a Calvinist, he was Calvinist, but Baptists don't practice infant baptism. Presbyterians do, as, as your church tradition did. So, uh, and, and some of them did, and some of them didn't. Uh, and 
some of the congregations I was in, you could either have your child baptized or dedicated, but neither thing meant what the Catholics believe. Yeah, you could choose by one, regeneration, okay. right? Yeah, you, you could you could choose one or the other. But choose your one. own baptism. Yeah, you know? yeah. I'll have sprinkles on mine. Well, yeah, anyway, basically. What happened at that time, Matt? Then was that I went back and I reread what I thought were the best arguments for the Baptist position on baptism, and I reread or I read for maybe for the first time even the best arguments for infant baptism in the Presbyterian position. And here's what happened. I came away from those studies, and this is years and years and years before I ever conceived of, of departing from Sola Scriptura. I came away from the study thinking that I wasn't sure. You know, or, or put it, let me put it this way. I could see how the New Testament, there were passages that were presented to me that seemed to support the Presbyterian practice of infant baptism. I could see how these passages might support infant baptism, but it wasn't entirely clear to me that they did. You know, it, I, I was kind of left with a, I was kind of left with thinking, man, you know, these arguments are plausible for infant baptism, but then again, they're not that clear that they don't prove anything. It wasn't clear to me that they did. What was clear to me was that those who come to personal faith in Christ are to be baptized. That's clear to everyone, and it was clear to me that baptism at least symbolized our washing, uh, the washing away of our sins and whatnot. And so I remained a Baptist, Matt, and in the end, uh, I can see that it was like I felt that I would rather accept less of what the apostles were teaching than to make a mistake and find myself accepting more than what, than what they were teaching. But isn't this the trajectory of so much of Christianity? All that matters is the answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? And everything else is a distraction. And so many congregations end up just dealing with the complicated stuff by just shoving it in a corner and say, no, what matters is Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Yeah, or just accepting whatever their tradition happens to hold on those Right, exactly. So, I mean, it's yeah. that essentialist kind of thing where you're like, well, I just don't want to step out yeah. into, the, into the wild on this. I'm going to stay in the safest spots possible theologically. But for someone committed to sola scriptura, you know, really committed to the idea that the, I would take the Bible as my only authoritative source of knowledge, I realized that there was a tendency, and I think it's perfectly natural, there's a tendency to want to avoid reading out from Scripture more than is actually there. And so, in a sense, there's kind of the tendency to minimize or to, to want to minimize. And it, again, what I mean by that is that there were passages that might be supporting the practice of infant baptism. But since they only might be, I just thought a safer position was to take what I knew the New Testament was teaching. And so I remained a Baptist. Now, as for baptismal regeneration, I never gave a single thought to the idea that this could possibly be the teaching of the New Testament. Nor did I. Not a thought. Not a thought. Not even close. Okay, now run the tape forward about a decade. I find out that my old friend Scott Hahn has become a Catholic, and I begin to freak out. I become curious about the Catholic faith. I begin to pour myself into trying to understand the case for Catholicism. I'm reading John Henry Newman, now St. John mistake. Henry Newman. That's your first mistake. I'm reading his classic book, The Essay on the Development of Christian Doctrine, and I read where he says, history is not a creed or a catechism. You know, it, it doesn't spell things out, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and that kind of clarity. History gives lessons rather than rules, Still, no one can mistake its general teaching in this matter, whether he accept it or stumble at it. Bold outlines and broad masses of color rise out of the records of the past. They may be dim. They may be incomplete. 
but they are definite. And this one thing at least is certain, the Christianity of history is not Protestantism. If ever there were a safe truth, it is this. Newman went on to say that it was easy to show that the early church was not Protestant, okay? And I'm a Baptist pastor, I'm a Protestant at the time, so I take this as the gauntlet thrown down at my feet, you know, and I begin to read the early church fathers straight through, and as much as we understand, in chronological order. And Matt, one of the things that struck me right away, almost immediately, was the way that these early church fathers spoke about baptism. And again, these are people who are not very far removed from the apostles themselves and who would have been taught how to do these things by the apostles and the churches they founded. Yeah, and that's why I was so struck by the kinds, by the sort of language they used to describe baptism. You're right. They're very, very early. For instance, I'll give some illustrations here or examples. I'm reading along in the letter of Barnabas, one of the earliest post-apostolic writings that we possess. The subject of baptism comes up, and I find the author of this letter describing baptism as, quote, the washing which confers the remission of sins, unquote. He goes on to explain, quote, we descend into the water full of sins and defilement, but we come up bearing fruit in our heart. What a, what a weird, strange way to talk about baptism was my initial well, reaction. It, well, and it been my, my reaction wouldn't have been that. My re- reaction would have been, well, that's a very f- nice and poetic way to envision this. I would not have thought that there was anything literal to what he was saying. Yeah, well, one quotation, you might think that, but soon, pretty, pretty soon I'm reading The Shepherd of Hermas, another of the earliest Christian writings that we possess. Again, I'm reading merrily along uh, when suddenly I run into another passage about baptism, and this is what uh, the Shepherd of Hermas says, quote, I have heard, sir, said I, from some teacher, that there is no other repentance except that which took place when we went down into the water and obtained the remission of our former sins. He said to me, you have heard rightly, for so it is. Okay, so at this point, a couple of quotations, I'm beginning a little bit to want to scratch my head and think, you know, what is going on here? When we went down into the water and we obtained the remission of our former sins? I mean, I would never have thought to speak in this way about baptism. Pretty soon I'm reading Justin Martyr's first apology. This is written 150 AD, again, very, very early. And I run into this. As many as are persuaded and believe that what we teach and say is true and undertake to to be able to live accordingly, they are instructed to pray and entreat God with fasting for the remission of their sins that are past while we pray and fast with them. Then they are brought by us where there is water and are regenerated, are born again, in the same manner in which we ourselves were born again. For in the name of God the Father and Lord of the universe and of our Savior Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit, they then receive the washing with water. For Christ also said, unless you be born again, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. That last line, I would have never thought of it as a reference to baptism. Unless you are born again, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, from John, cha- from John chapter 3. I mean, as a Baptist, what we thought was that Jesus is saying you're born of water. That's your physical birth. That's your first birth. In fact, the water might refer to the amniotic fluid of birth. And then you're born of the Spirit when you're born again, that he's referring to two completely separate things. You know, 
this passage, John chapter 3, had nothing whatsoever to do with baptism. Well, well I read this and I'm asking, well, did Justin believe in baptismal regeneration? Did, yeah. Ju- did Justin believe that when Jesus spoke to Nicodemus that night about his need to be born again of water and spirit, did Jesus, I mean, did, did Justin Martyr believe that he was talking about baptism? Yeah, and this is a, a clue to uh, kind of illustrate what you, were, you and I have been talking about previously. It wasn't just that we were finding new information. We were finding a whole different way of looking at the world. Um, and a big part of this is, and I think I invoked this example recently, if you were to go do a sermon series on baptism, you'd get out your Strong's Concordance, look up the word baptism, find the times that it appears in the scriptures, and then you would talk about those, <laughs> right? You, yeah. If it didn't clearly say baptism, it did, the assumption was it wasn't really about baptism. And this is yeah. eye-opening for me. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned before, um, you would have skipped everything in the early church because it just doesn't really matter. Yeah. Okay. Well, a few more quote, quotations because you know these ideas were being hammered into my head. Soon, I'm reading something that Clement of Alexandria wrote around 190 A.D., and here's what I found him saying: When we are baptized, we are enlightened. Being enlightened, we are adopted as sons. Adopted as sons, we are made perfect. This work is variously called grace, illumination, perfection, and washing. It is a washing by which we are cleansed of sins a gift of grace by which the punishments due our sins are remitted, an illumination by which we behold that holy light of salvation. I can't imagine that you would have ever preached on that. I can't imagine ever hearing a sermon in a Nazarene church or a free Methodist church or anything talking about baptism like that. I don't know if I was hanging my head at this point or whether I was just sort of in stunned silence, to borrow a phrase from Martin Martin Luther, you know, like a cow staring at a new gate, just sort of mesmerized, not knowing what to think. But I'm reading these things, and yeah, you're right. I would have never thought ever to speak of baptism, and I find all of these ancient writers speaking of it in these ways. I went on to Tertullian. He's writing around 203 AD, and this is what he says, "'Happy is our sacrament of water.'" In fact, by washing away the sins of our early blindness, we are set free and admitted into eternal life. Baptism itself is a corporeal act by which we are plunged into the water, while its effect, its effect is spiritual in that we are freed from our sins. Well, talk about effect. It's really hard for me to communicate the effect that this was having on me at the time. I mean, think about it. Baptism confers the remission of sins. In baptism, we obtain the remission of our former sins. In baptism, we're regenerated, we're enlightened, we're cleansed of sins. I'm, I'm, I'm picking up all these phrases from them. In baptism, we are set free and admitted to eternal life. You know what I thought the effect of baptism was when I was in those congregations of uh, sort of a Wesleyan evangelical yeah. stripe? I would have thought the effect of it was that now the congregation who just watched me do this knows I'm serious about my faith. Yeah, and you know what? This kind of striking to me because Methodism comes from Anglicanism, and the Anglicans believe in, at least historically, believed in baptismal regeneration. So I didn't even know that the Methodists dropped that. I thought I'm sure well, it John depends Wesley on the Methodist. Hadn't. I was I was free Methodist, right? So you're <laughs> you know, free for, from that <laughs> as I'm coming to this awareness, right? And, and Nazarene as yeah. I'm coming to my awareness yeah. on, on these things. Uh, my United Methodist period, I think, ended when I was in like second grade. Okay, but let, let me just take the ball peen hammer a, a couple a couple more swings on your head, okay? Okay, I'll, I'll duck. Because I could go on quoting similar quotations quickly. Cyril of Jerusalem, this is what he says about baptism. You go down dead in your sins. You come up made alive in righteousness. St. Augustine wrote, baptism washes away all, absolutely all of our sins. 
This is the meaning of that great sacrament of baptism, which is celebrated by us. St. Gregory of Nazianzus wrote, Baptism is the God's most beautiful and magnificent gift. We call it gift, grace, anointing, enlightenment, garment of immortality, bath of rebirth. And we're going to get onto the scripture yeah. next time around, but Paul calls it the bath of rebirth when he's talking to Timothy. Yes, I Again, know. Things and you never see until you start looking at how this is actually lived by the first Christians. Here is the most disconcerting thing of all, Matt. It's not that I found some of the ancient Christian writers, the most ancient Christian writers we have, speaking in these sorts of ways, and then I found others among them speaking like good, good Baptists and making it very clear that baptism was purely symbolic. Rather, whenever baptism is mentioned, it seemed to me this is the kind of language that you find. This is the way all the earliest Christian writers speak when they speak about baptism. And it was beginning to dawn on me, apparently this is what they believed. Apparently, this is what the earliest Christians living in these earliest centuries actually believed about baptism. They believed it long enough for it to make it to the Council of Nicaea, where it made it into the creed, where we say, I confess one baptism for forgiveness. forgiveness of sins. And that's 325 A.D. <laughs> that's 325 A.D., and it's after most of these guys you just read. Okay, well, I'm almost in a panic at this point, okay, because I'm thinking, Scott Hahn became a Catholic. He's a smart guy. What am I going to do with that? Now I'm reading the Early Fathers. John Henry Newman's blowing me away. But now I'm reading the Early Fathers, and this, this illustration from baptism is this jumping out at me. And so almost in a panic, I grabbed again some of the works of great historians of the early church. I mentioned J. D. Kelly earlier. Well, J. D. Kelly worldwide is considered to be one of the greatest historians of early church doctrine. And in his book, Early Christian Doctrines, I grabbed it, I turned to a section on baptism, and this is what I read. From the beginning, baptism was the universally accepted right of admission into the church. Okay, I'm fine with that, but not this. As it regards, as regards its significance, it was always held to convey the remission of sins. It is that washing with the living water which alone can cleanse penitence and which being a baptism with the Holy Spirit is to be contrasted with Jewish washings. It is a spiritual rite replacing circumcision, the unique doorway to the remission of sins. I turned around, I grabbed another volume, this one titled The Emergence of the Catholic Tradition, written by another of the most important modern historians of Christian doctrine, but a gentleman with the unfortunate name of Yaroslav Pelikan. <laughs> and I, I've always got this in my head. I wonder what junior high was like for him, you know? Yaroslav Pelikan. Go sit back in the back of the room next to Bob Siegel. Yeah, you know, you're a slob, Pelican. Get out of here, <laughs> you know. But anyway, this was a Lutheran historian, a Yale a professor at Yale for many, many years. So I, I grab his book, The Emergence of the Catholic Tradition. And what he does is this. He takes Tertullian's treatise on the, doc, on the doctrine of baptism, which, by the way, was the first ever written on this subject in the church, and therefore illustrates well what the early church believed about baptism. Anyway, um, Yaroslav Pelikan takes Tertullian's treatise, and he uses this to summarize what he calls the four basic gifts that are given in baptism. This is what the early church believed. Quote, the remission of sins given in baptism, deliverance from death, regeneration, and the bestowal of the Holy Spirit. He, he, he just summarizes it like that. He, he says, this is what the early church believed about baptism. 
and Ken, when I discovered this, and then I went back and read the Bible, I saw baptism being talked about this in the scriptures everywhere. Yeah, I know. Well, you know what? And this is our cliffhanger in a way, because that's what we're going to do next week. But the, the thing is, for me, Matt, at this point, it was becoming more and more apparent to me that if anyone existed in the early church, the early centuries of Christianity, anyone who held the view that I held of baptism, the view that virtually every Christian I knew held of baptism, the view that evangelical Protestants in America universally hold about baptism, if anyone existed like that, holding that view, there's no record of it. I mean, there's no record of any Christian movement or denomination or anything like that holding this view of baptism all the way up until the time of the Reformation. And John Henry Newman said in that quote you mentioned earlier, if there's a safe truth, that is one, right? That it's, There's nothing yeah. back there that looks like what you and I were doing. Yeah, and he says it's not—I love what he says, that the early church is not like it's a—it's it's not like it's a— um, um, what does he call it? A rule, or um, it, 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 in other words, it's not like it's laid out in A B C D E F G form. But he says, still, its teaching is unmistakable because broad masses of color arise out of the past, and you can see what they believed, right? So I remember coming home one day. You know, my my classic thing. I came home to Tina one day, and I said, I said, honey, I've been crawling around in the early church for a long time. I mean, I've looked under every rock. I've looked. Uh, behind every green tree on every high hill. And I said, there is not a Baptist in sight in the early church. And and truly, there wasn't, and there isn't a Baptist in sight. M my response was to feel embarrassed, really, at this point. I mean, I I'm thinking to myself, how in the world could I have been so cut off from history in my understanding More than of that, how in the world could I have been so uninterested yeah, how could I have been so wedded to the idea of sola scriptura that I basically didn't even care what the early church believed? Okay, even though the apostles come and found their churches and they appoint their successors, even though they're much closer to the apostles' teaching than, than we are, I didn't care. Now, I cared more about C.S. Lewis and what he said 1,900 years later. Yeah. Or, <laughs> it's amazing. I know. It is strange. I mean, how could I have been so cut off from history? How could I have not cared? Um, and then I thought about this, too. I thought, talk about embarrassing. I, I, I thought, if I could parachute back into the early centuries then, would I have opposed the teaching of the church on this issue? I mean, based on my own personal reading of the New Testament, would I have had the gall to say to them, all of these people we've been quoting, you're all wrong and I'm right? because I'm interpreting the New Testament correctly? Would I have had the gall to start my own congregation, my own church, my own denomination? And it's at this point that I became extremely eager, Matt, to go back to the Bible. I was thinking to myself, I want to go back now and reread the New Testament. I want to re-examine everything the New Testament says about baptism, and I want to re-examine it in the light now of what I've seen in the early church fathers. Would I find the teaching of the early church flatly contradicted by the New Testament? That would be a possibility, and I don't know what I would have done with it. But another possibility was this. Would I possibly see things that I had never seen before? Yeah, and that's the, the whole category of things that Marcus calls verses I never saw, right? Yeah, would I have seen something new? And that is approaching the New Testament now in the light of ecclesiastical tradition, the early church's teaching on baptism, 
would it be possible that I would find that, that ecclesiastical tradition to actually illuminate the pages of Scripture for me, to provide a lens through which the teaching of Paul and James and Peter and the others would come into, folk, into sharper focus? Is this a possibility? That was the question that I wanted to ask, and that's where we're going to go next week and probably the next two weeks to look at the doctrine of baptism in Scripture through the lens of the early church, see what we see. And I'd had teachers and professors and authors show me things in the Scripture I hadn't seen before. But when the Father started showing me these things I hadn't seen before, it rocked my world. That's just—I don't know any other way to put it. Yeah, so— you hit on one of the key passages, the one about where Paul actually refers to the washing of regeneration. And uh, yeah. I mean, if you read that in the light of the early church fathers, you hear one thing. If you don't read it in the light of the early church fathers, you say, oh, well, who knows what he meant? Who knows what he means? Yeah. But we we can know because of the deposit of faith, because the apostles, like rich man putting his money in the bank, as Irenaeus says— has that interpretation and that teaching preserved for us. So we'll get into the Bible next week after we've read the Church Fathers, going back and seeing if we can see evidence of what they were talking about in the Scriptures themselves. Ken, I'm excited about that one. There's going to be a lot of fun had in the next episode. So Same in here. the meantime, come check us out. Visit chnetwork.org. Subscribe to our channel. We would love to hear from you. We'd love to hear from you if you have some more thoughts on this discussion. And also, if you're on a journey like Ken and I, we're figuring all this stuff out and are in need of support. The Coming Home Network is built to give pastoral care and support to people who are exploring the Catholic faith. So until next time, have a great week.